Well, good morning again. How are you doing? Are you well? Good morning. This morning we continue on our journey through the gospel according to Matthew. We launched this new series through this book just a few weeks ago. As you know, we, we preach through books of the Bible, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Open it to Matthew chapter 2. If you do not, we do have Bibles on the bookshelf out in the resource table area. Feel free to grab one if you need. Um, but we've entitled this journey, The King and His Kingdom. And so turn to Matthew chapter 2, where we'll, we'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning. When you are there, and if you are able to, I want to invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we're having Christmas in May. It's wonderful. My goal this morning is to help make sense of this very familiar text, both practically and relationally, especially regarding how it is that you and I are to respond to the arrival of King Jesus. In fact, this morning I've entitled this sermon, Responding to the King. The call to seek, to worship, and obey King Jesus. Before we begin, I want to invite you to pray with me. God, we thank You for Your Word, and we, we ask, Lord, that You would soften our hearts. Lord, it's true that, that there are calluses that get built up on our hearts, whether it's from unbelief or it's from unrepentant sin. Lord, I just pray that You would soften our hearts so we could have a greater understanding of who You are, a greater understanding of our identity in Jesus, a greater understanding of the Gospel. I pray, Lord, that You would equip us through Your Word to live the life that You've called us to as we love You and pursue a life that, that looks like Yours and lives like Yours and as we work to, to lead others to You. Lord, I pray that this morning the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth would be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight. God, You are our rock and Redeemer. We love You and we give You all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. To worship is to be human. In other words, everyone is a worshiper. Every person. We all worship something. We, also, we all worship someone. 
In fact, worship is the imagination station deep within the human psyche that incubates and nurtures whatever it is we love, whatever it is we are longing for. Inherent to the human condition is the internalization and cultivation of what you and I most desire. Which means we all worship what we most long for. We bend our knees to that which we most love. We prioritize. We devote ourselves to what we feel to be the most important. I believe this is why Jesus asks in John chapter 1, two of His would-be disciples, He asks, what are you seeking? In other words, Jesus wants to make sure that our motives in following Him are pure. Are we seeking to follow Jesus because of who Jesus is? Is He the one we want? Or is the pursuit of wealth, the pursuit of honor, the pursuit of greatness, is that what our hearts truly desire? You see, the most fundamental question of Christian discipleship is, what do you want? This question pierces the heart. It cuts deep to the quick because we are or we are becoming whatever it is that we most want. Whatever it is we are seeking. Our wants and our longings are at the core of who we are. And it's from this wellspring of desire that our actions, our priorities, our behavior, it's from that wellspring in which they flow. We are becoming what we most desire. We are becoming that which we most love. This is why Jesus commands us to hunger, to thirst for righteousness. You see, His command to follow Him is a command to align our hearts, our loves, our longings, and our desires with His. To follow Jesus, to worship Jesus, means that that we want what He wants. We desire what He desires. We thirst after Him. We hunger after Him. We, We crave His presence. And we long for the King and the Kingdom to come. Brothers and sisters, you and I are becoming what we love. And what we love your passions, your core convictions, your allegiances, they're all being formed and shaped by your habits, by your practices. The truth is, there is a contest of cultural practices that are competing for our hearts, competing to control our longings, competing to control our desires, our loves, and our behavior. We, what we love is foundational to our spiritual identity and our growth in godliness. As a result, many of us may at times find ourselves in what we would call a spiritual desert. We feel a disconnect from from God, and oftentimes we struggle to know why. We read His Word, we study His Word, we, we pray, but the spiritual rut seems to linger. Why? Well, perhaps we've had a disconnected, um, spiritual, misguided Worship. Maybe this disconnect is a result of a misguided worship. Perhaps we have found ourselves longing and desiring things that are not God or of God. As a result of our sinful hearts, we have been attempting to find our ultimate fulfillment and our ultimate satisfaction in the things that are of this world or within our flesh while we neglect the surpassing worth of knowing and worshiping King Jesus. Matthew 2 serves us this morning as a recalibration tool for our heart. It will lead us to repentance. Lead us to faith while also instructing us on what a right and worshipful response to Jesus looks like. 
Ultimately, our text is going to show us that we can find fulfillment in the surpassing worth of King Jesus as we seek Him, as we worship Him, as we seek to obey Him. Our narrative this morning, as I mentioned before, is usually reserved for Christmas. Yet this story is not at all about the birth of Jesus, but what happens after His birth. As a result of nativity scenes and and Christmas carols, we have developed a a biblically inaccurate view and understanding of the events that take place in Matthew chapter 2. You see, we don't know how long after the birth of Jesus that these wise men came to visit. But we know that Jesus was at least a year old and the family had moved out of the, the barn, moved out of the manger, so to speak, and into a home. The one clarity that we have in our text and the timing of these events is that Herod was king. Look at verse 1. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. Legend, tradition tells us a lot about these wise men. And a lot of what we're told cannot be verified in Scripture. For example, our text does not say that there was three. Matthew never tells us there was a trio. Now, we do see that there's three gifts, yes. There's three gifts, but there's probably actually dozens within this entourage. There were probably dozens of leaders, soldiers, servants that traveled up to thousand miles over rough terrain. And this group, it was large enough that as they were arriving to Jerusalem, that the report of their arrival came to King Herod himself. This term, wise men, translates the Greek term magi, a word from which we get our English words magic or magician. See, these were not three kings, as the song says, but rather these were a group of wise men. Magi were often astronomers. They were experts in reading the stars. These magi were counselors to kings. They were extremely educated, noble, Wealthy men who were trained to, to counsel and advise their king, similar to a president's cabinet. These magi, they studied the stars in a time when astronomy and astrology, the, the barrier between was quite vague. The Bible not only forbids the practice of astrology, but, but mocks it. We see the prophet Isaiah makes fun of stargazers, such as these wise men, who make predictions month by month but cannot save themselves. But God, He communicates to these wise men in a way that they understood. You see, the stars got their attention, so God used a star. And in the same way that God spoke to these pagan astrologers, God still speaks to sinners today. He uses language in which His people understand. For years, I always wondered, why would God speak to these pagan magi who served a pagan king who practiced a forbidden practice? But God spoke to these broken sinners because that's what God does. In other words, Jesus didn't come for good people. He he came for sinners who listen when God calls. And these magi remind us that God still calls sinners. He still seeks sinners. Now these pagan dignitaries traveled a great distance to meet the prophesied king of the Jews. As wise men, they probably had some access to scriptures. Specifically, the prophet of Daniel. As many believe that these wise men traveled from the area of Babylon, where they would have had access to Daniel's writings. And this is 
perhaps what guided them this way. We, they knew of Daniel. They, if they did, they would have known that he had predicted in some specificity the birth of a royal deliverer in Israel. And they saw this mysterious star pointing towards Jerusalem, and so they followed it. They arrived, like I said, with an impressive entourage. Their caravan quickly garnered the attention of King Herod, who gave them a royal audience. Perhaps these men, Herod perhaps thought, have come to develop, establish a treaty or, or, or peace or an alliance. But when he asked the purpose of their visit, look at how they replied in verse 2. They say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. God supernaturally drew these wise men from the east to Jerusalem to worship King Jesus. In the same way, God is calling you and I to worship King Jesus. Which is our first point, God's call to worship. God speaks and we respond. God initiates and we respond. In verse 2, these wise men came into Jerusalem and asked one of life's most important questions. A question that would have unsettled their royal audience. Consider the fact that King Herod, with the support of the Roman Empire, he took this throne in which he sat by force. He was also paranoid. He had murdered a wife and, and even a couple of sons because he feared that they wanted his throne. Herod had a reputation for treachery for murder, for betrayal. And these wise men come before this self-proclaimed king of the Jews and they ask him, where has the king of the Jews been born? In other words, they look at this man who has a terrifying reputation and they say, where is the real king? Which was probably not the wisest question for a bunch of wise men to ask. But the truth is, these magi, these wise men, they were not impressed by this puppet king that sat on the throne for Rome. They were not impressed by him. They were determined to find the true king. In other words, their need to find Jesus silenced whatever fear existed inside of them. Whatever fear that, of, of what Herod would do to them, they had to find this king of the Jews. Why? Well, look back at verse 2. For we saw His star at its risings. In other words, we saw the star in the east and have come to worship Him. Life's most important question, where is the King? Leads to life's most important mission, which is we have come to worship the King. Tell me, where is Jesus in your life? Many professing Christians live their life as though Jesus is along for the ride. But in actuality, as they live their life, they leave Christ behind because the King of the universe does not become an addition to one's life, for He is life. He is the point. Where is Jesus in your life today? Is He front and center? Is He the focus of your dreams and desires? Friends, every person is a worshiper. You see, the issue is not if you will worship, it is who, what you are worshiping. What is front and center of your life? What drives your emotions, your love, your dreams? What has your mind and heart captive? For that is who or what you are worshiping. We all worship, and some of us worship work. Some of us worship money or the things money can buy. 
Some of us worship convenience. Some of us worship pleasure. Some of us worship family. We all worship something or someone. The question is, who or what are you bending your knee to? What are you bowing down to as your king? In his book, Real Worship, Warren Wearsby makes a striking statement. He says this, God and Satan have one thing in common. They both desire our worship. However, their intentions differ vastly. God wants us to worship Him because He is worthy and He wants to transform us through His grace. On the other hand, Satan wants our worship so that he can destroy us and he views worship as the easiest way to achieve his diabolical purpose. What are you worshiping? God is calling you to seek the true King. God is calling you to bow your knee to Him and Him alone because He alone is worthy of our praise. He alone is worthy of our focus. Brothers and sisters, 2,000 years ago, the eternal God entered the womb of a virgin where His human body grew for nine months. His mother gave birth to the Son of God who took on human flesh and blood. And frankly, that demands a response. And in verses 3-8, through eight, we see how Herod responds. We see how some religious leaders respond. They, they simply resist Him. Which is still how the world responds to Jesus today. Which leads us to our second point, or the second part of our outline. The world's response to the King. The world's response to the King, we begin to see this in verse 3. When King Herod heard this, that they were searching for the true king of the Jews, they, he was deeply disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. Remember, Herod was considered, was known as the king of the Jews. He was vicious. He was bloodthirsty. He was a tyrant. Whenever he suspected anyone plotting to take over his rule, he simply took them out. He had them killed. So when Herod heard that these wise men, that these magi, these officials that had power, that had influence, had journeyed to Jerusalem to find a baby that was born king of the Jews, Matthew says that he's deeply disturbed, which really is quite an understatement. This word translated as disturbed literally means that he was in turmoil. He was terrified. Herod, he's an interesting guy to be honest with you. How he reacts and responds in this situation confuses me. He doesn't seem to be um, of his right mind. He's, his thoughts are hard to understand. You see, if he believed the prophecies of the Messiah were to be true, then he would have known that there would have been no point in, in, in fighting against God. Any attempt would have been pointless. On the other hand, if he didn't believe in the prophecies, then why in the world would he be afraid of a toddler? It just doesn't make sense to me. Why would he be threatened by an ordinary little kid? But I think ultimately the phrase that the Magi used, the king of the Jews, sounded like a threat to him. Like the announcement of a potential rival. And as we'll see next week, Herod was so determined to kill his rival that he orders the death of all infant boys under the age of two in Bethlehem. Herod's response just doesn't make sense. If these magi are correct about the prophecy, does he really believe he can thwart God's plan? Does he really believe that he can stop God from doing what God does? 
And if they're wrong, and why is he scared of a toddler? And Herod's irrational thinking here and decision-making reminds us that rebellion against God, friends, is simply foolish. Rebellion against God is foolish. It's foolish to fight God. But the truth is, sin, ladies and gentlemen, makes us foolish. Sin makes us foolish. Irrational. Blind. Spiritually dead. So Herod, he's threatened by the announcement of one who would take over his reign. This one who was born king of the Jews. And in Jerusalem, if, if Herod, this cruel tyrant king, is upset, well, everybody is upset out of fear of what he would do and how he would respond. Everyone else is disturbed too. One disturbed man disturbed a whole city. And in his irrational fear, he calls in the religious experts in verse 3. And King Herod heard this. He was deeply disturbed. Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and the scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. Herod, he pulls in two groups of experts. The chief priests and the scribes. And these two groups stood at the opposite end of Jewish leadership. The scribes were the conservative teachers of Jewish law. And their focus was to preserve the traditional Jewish culture. On the other hand, the chief priests were willing to accommodate Roman power and Greek culture so that they may remain in control. So they could retain their wealth. So they could retain their political power. And so Herod invites these opposing parties into the room because if these opposing parties agree on something, then he knows he can trust them. And this is exactly what Herod does. He calls these rivals together and he asks, where is this Christ? Where is this promised Messiah to be born? And both groups correctly reply by citing the Old Testament prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Look at verse 5 of Matthew 2. They reply, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what is written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Then Herod, he secretly summons the wise men and asks them the exact time the star appears. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and and carefully search for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. These religious leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, rightfully They rightfully quote, reference this 700-year-old prophecy of Micah, which was directly fulfilled by the birth of Christ. And the chief priests and the scribes, they knew exactly where the Messiah King was to be born, in Bethlehem. Yet after they give their answer, we don't hear from them anymore. And I found this interesting. This is... They they understand, they knew exactly where to find the answer to this. They expect their deliverer, in a sense. And there are reports now coming to them that their deliverer has been born and where he is. Yet Matthew implies that these religious leaders do nothing. They don't rejoice. They don't join the Magi on their trip to Bethlehem. They don't even bother to go and investigate whether this report was true or not. They simply answer Herod and they apathetically go home indifferent to the potential that the Messiah had come. Then Herod, he tries to manipulate the wise men. He has no intention to plan. He has no intention or plan to go and worship the king. We know that Herod is too blinded by power, too blinded by self-love to worship anyone other than himself. See, all of these men, they know the truth. 
but they are not moved by the truth. Which reminds me, Bible knowledge does not produce salvation. Friend, you can know a great deal about the Bible and still be lost and dead in your sin. One of the signs that you may have a false presumption of your salvation is spiritual indifference. Are you indifferent to the Word of God? Are you indifferent to what Christ has done? If you can hear or read or know the Word of God and it does not move you to worship, if you are not moved to grow in grace and your knowledge of Jesus Christ, then you need to pause and evaluate why is it that you are indifferent to the new good news of the Gospel? Why am I not being moved by this? Consider what Matthew says in Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Do many miracles in your name? Then I'll announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. The apathy of the teachers of the law, the apathy of these Scribes and priests is pathetic, but unfortunately, friends, it's typical and it continues today. This is something that plagues the modern American church. I'm reminded of how it was the religious people, they were the ones who were the last to receive Christ. If the pagans had seen Jesus' signs, if they had heard his preaching, Jesus said that they would have repented, but these religious people saw no need of repentance. They're so focused on works-based salvation that they thought they were good. If it was true then, and friends, it's still true today, sometimes those who most know the faith in their minds know it the least in their hearts. And they are not moved. Friends, Jesus will always be a threat to those who are in power, and Jesus will always be a stumbling block who are, to those who are trusting in themselves for salvation. As a result, the world in which we live is either disturbed by the name of Jesus or they're indifferent to Jesus. But like the Magi, we should not be ashamed of our King. We should not be ashamed to worship Him boldly, publicly, defiantly. Consider Philippians, Philippians 2, 9-11. through For this reason, God highly exalted Him, Jesus, gave Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, every knee on, in heaven, every knee on earth and under the earth will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. The question is, will you bend your knee today or, and, and, or will you bend your knee when it's too late? Some will confess Jesus to be their Lord, to be their King, and they'll do so with great joy and humility. And others, like King Herod, will confess Him as Lord forcefully, be forced to, through anguish and despair. But one thing that you and I can take to the bank is that everyone, from every age, will bend their knee to Jesus as King. Sadly, it will be too late for some. For if you do not acknowledge and confess that Jesus is Lord in this life, it will be too late after death. And so this morning, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus as King, 
I implore you to do so. Receive Him as your Savior. Confess Him as your Lord. And worship Him today as your King. The wise men, they searched for Jesus to worship Him. Herod was threatened and plotted against Him. The religious establishment ignored Him, were indifferent to Him. And these ancient responses are no different today. Things have not changed and they confront us and force us to examine our own hearts this morning. Ask yourself, what is my response to the name, the person, the authority, the work, and the message of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are my affections being stirred for Him? Am I longing for Him? Is my life centered around Him? Is He the point of my life? Which leads us to number three. The believer's response to the King is worship. The believer's response to King Jesus is worship. In verses 9-12, through 12, we, they reveal to us a worshipful response and what it looks like in the life of a believer, beginning with the truth that the believer worships Jesus joyfully. The believer worships Jesus joyfully. Look at verse 9-10. through 10. After hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was. The star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Remember that when the Magi came into the court of King Herod, they were not moved They were not impressed by His royal splendor. They did not rejoice. We finally met King Herod. They were not impressed, but they found Jesus. They haven't even seen Him yet. They just located Him. And they were overwhelmed with joy. And to be honest, our English translation of this verse does not do the intensity of what's being said here justice. A more accurate translation could be when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy that they rejoiced at the top of their voices. In other words, they were so overwhelmed with happiness, they were so full of delight that the only appropriate response was to shout joyfully, thank you, Jesus. We worship you, Jesus. May you be glorified, Jesus. You see, their joy was not passive. It was not reserved. It was not nonchalant. Finding Jesus made these noble, wealthy dignitaries, these, these men shout They could care less about the power and the prestige and the opinion of Herod. It was finding Jesus that led them to rejoice. Tell me, what makes you shout for joy? I pray that we would be convicted of our passive, nonchalant worship of King Jesus. We claim to know, love, and trust Jesus, but if we're honest, we get excited about everything but Jesus. Friends, exuberant and joyful worship is not reserved for specific denominations. But joyful and uninhibited worship of Jesus should be the posture of every believer. Psalm 100, in which we began our service this morning, says, let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful songs. Mission Church, you have permission to sing. You have permission to worship uninhibited. You have permission to joyfully and exuberantly shout for joy, for worship should be both formative and expressive. Here at Mission, we have the formative part down, but we need to work on the expressive part. 
Friends, we have been set free from sin and death. We now stand before God not as a mess, but as righteousness because of Jesus. We were once dead, but now we are alive. We did nothing to earn this new standing with God. Jesus has done it all. The only response is to shout triumphantly to the Lord with gladness and sing loudly our songs of praise to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, King Jesus. And not only were you to worship Him joyfully, but we're also to worship Him reverently. The believer worships Jesus reverently and sacrificially. Look at verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When these men saw Jesus, they immediately fell to their knees. Some commentators said that they were on their face, prostrate before the Messiah King. When I thought about this, I thought, that's awkward. That's uncomfortable. How, how awkward would that have been for Mary and Joseph? <laughs> this entourage of, of wise men and, and counselors to kings are bowing before their baby. And I think that I thought it was awkward because many of us struggle to worship if we're not comfortable. We need music to be the right style or the songs to be the right songs. We need lights to be a certain way so that people can't see us sing or hear us sing, so we need the, the volume at the right level. And the fortunate truth is that biblical worship actually in, invites us out of our comfort zone. My favorite preacher once said, you cannot seek His face and save your face at the same time. It must all be about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now after these wise men bowed reverently before the king, what did they do? They opened up their treasure boxes and they give Him gifts. You see, worship and giving go together. That's why when Pastor David came up to do the offering, there's this continuation of our worship through sacrificial, joyful giving. Now, there's some theologians who explore the symbolic meaning of each of these gifts. They want to link each gift to an Old Testament prophecy to further declare the deity of Christ. I think that's a noble adventure, but I think, I think these guys were just wise men. Magi. They were wise men from the East. I don't think that their, their gifts were being brought in a sense of a, a connection specifically to an Old Testament prophecy. I think they just knew that they were meeting a king. And when they meet a king, they, they bring gifts. And because of their stature and their position, these gifts that they brought were grand and expensive. They were gifts perfectly fit for a king. Gold was considered the metal of kings. Gold was, was beautiful, rare, and expensive Frankincense was a glittering, fragrant gum which was laboriously extracted from the bark of rare trees. And myrrh was another valuable spice and perfume. A perfume, a bottle of myrrh could cost, even today, as much as $10,000. You see, the Magi simply brought Jesus the best gifts that they could. And you may not have anything that compares to gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But everything that you and I have has been given to us from our King. And He invites us to give to Him what He has so graciously given to us. And we are to do so worshipfully and obediently. The believer also worships Jesus obediently. Look at verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. I say route. Is it route? Route 66? Route 66? 
They went another way. Remember back before these wise men left Jerusalem, as they're hanging out with King Herod, King Herod didn't just ask them, but he commanded them, return, report back to me where this king is. But as we know, and as we will discuss more in depth the next Sunday, we know that Herod's intention was not to worship Jesus, but to murder him. So God warns them in a dream, don't go back to Herod. This is not good. (laughs) Go home another way. And the truth is, it would have been much more sensible for these this, this entourage to go back the way they came. They were familiar with that terrain. Their camels had, had laid out the trail. It would have been much more difficult to blaze a new trail, to go a new way. But despite the difficulty, these wise men obeyed God's Word to them. You see, true worship should always lead us, brothers and sisters, to radical obedience. In other words, when you come to worship the King, He changes you. When you come to worship the King, you're no longer permitted to go back the way you came. I love what Richard J. Foster says. He says, if worship does not change us, it has not been worship. To stand before the Holy One of eternity is to change. Worship begins in holy expectancy and ends in holy obedience. Friends, our text this morning is a beautiful invitation that God has given to us to come and see the King God invited the Magi with a star, and this morning God is inviting you through His Word. He's inviting you to see His Son. He's inviting you to bow before Him as your King and to joyfully offer your life to Him as a worshiper. Brothers and sisters, regardless of your personality, you're invited to smile. You're invited to joyfully sing and affectionately worship the King of Kings. We should be excited. For the King has come. Like the wise men, we should be overwhelmed, bowing humbly and reverently. We are to give Jesus the sacrificial offering of our lives. Give Him everything we have. Everything that we are. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is King. As we see His royalty, as we see His deity, as we see His humanity, we should be compelled to shout and sing of His great worth. This is why we exist. As believers, this is our purpose. We are to joyfully offer our lives as worshipers to the King. And we are passionately, to spend our lives passionately as witnesses to this King. As we pursue a life that loves Jesus, lives like Jesus, and leads others to Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank You for Your Word. And I thank You for this direction and correction in which you have so gracefully reminded us, redirected us, recalibrated our hearts back to an understanding of our purpose as believers to to worship you. I thank you for that. And I ask, Lord, that you would lead us to repentance and faith and to trust in the good news of the gospel, that we would rest and what You've done for us and the life that You've given us. Lord, I pray that You would help us. That You'd stir our affections for Jesus. This is not something that we can muster up on our own. 
God, this is something that You have started in us. You say that You began the good work and You will complete this good work. And so we, we pray that we would rest in that. We ask, Lord, that You would continually stir our affections for Christ, that we might know You and more and, and love You more and worship You more passionately, that we would center our whole lives around You, for You are the only one worthy of our focus, worthy of our praise. Thank You. We give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.